Morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kurt McDonald. Uh, I have the great privilege this morning of bringing to you uh, God's perfect and precious word. Ephesians uh, 6, 12 through 13 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers, present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, if you're here this morning and you are a naturalist, meaning you only believe the things that can be empirically proven, uh, you do not believe that text. But I would venture to say most of you are not naturalists, mostly because very few people actually are. Uh, Most people actually believe in some type of spiritual realm. Uh, Most people believe in good spirits or bad spirits, angels, demons, that sort of thing. I would actually take it a step further and say that most of the people in this room would actually affirm that Ephesians 6 is true. You would, you would answer, yes, I believe there is spiritual warfare. If, if, if I had two boxes on a piece of paper and, and one said, no, I do not believe in spiritual warfare, the other box said, yes, I believe in spiritual warfare, I would venture to say that likely 90 plus percent of people in this room would check the box that says, yes, I believe in spiritual warfare. Now, let's take that a step even further and ask this question. Does your life reflect that you believe in spiritual warfare? Is is that theological reality evident in your life? Does your life look like you actually believe there is a war being waged between Satan, demons, and the God of heaven? Do you believe that Satan is actually attacking us, that he wants to destroy the church, that Satan wants to destroy your marriage, that Satan wants to destroy your family, that Satan wants to ruin the lives of your children and your family? Do you actually believe that is a reality, and and does your life reflect that that is true? Because people who are at battle live differently than people who are not. Does that make sense? People who are at battle are vigilant, meaning they're constantly looking out and watching for the enemy. People who are at battle um, are are strategic. They they don't waste time. They don't waste movement. They are are constantly strategizing about what they're going to do next and and how they're going to do it. There's this sense of vigilance and urgency in someone who is at battle. But the person who is not at battle, they're not vigilant. They're not urgent. They're not strategic in everything they do. They're they're bumping along through life, easily going down the trail, not watching out, not. Does your life reflect this? I tell you the truth on the authority of God's word this morning. There is a war being waged. It is a war over who gets God's glory. That's the war. That's the battle that's being fought. Where will the glory go? We, we, we as humans have this tendency to glory in things. We, we're hardwired to glory in things. We glory over sex and food and money. We, we give glory to those things. And the battle is that. Where is the glory going to go? Is the glory going to go to the creator or to the creation? Where will our hearts give the glory? And that is the battle, the war 
that is, is being waged. God wants us to give him all the glory. God wants us to be in awe of him. God wants all the praise, all the honor. He wants our total, complete, and full devotion. Is that because God is an egomaniac? Absolutely not. It is because when we give God the glory, we find our deepest joy. When we honor God, when we glorify God, we live and move and breathe in this sweet spot of how humans are supposed to exist. We find, when we glorify God, we find optimal human flourishing. That is why God wants us to give him the fullness and complete and all of the glory. And see, it is Satan and demons and their demonic forces that want us to not give God the glory. Satan and demons want to steal God's glory from him. And now it, it, it's usually not in this direct way, meaning that uh, Satan and demons knock on your door, you know, hello, I'm, I'm the devil. Um, I brought some demons along with me. Would you like to worship us? You know, get, get a pentagram tattoo on your forehead, dress in all black, you know, drink the blood of goats and things like that. It's going to be great. It, it, it's not that direct. See, Satan and demons are fine with just you not giving God the glory, but giving the glory to sex, to money, to power, to fame. They're, they're good with the glory going there as long as the glory does not go to God. Church family, it is high time that we wake up. You know what that means? That's, that's a... That's, a, that's something we say down here in the South. It is high time that the church wakes up and realize that Satan is real, demons are real, they are powerful, and they want you to be in awe of anything other than God. We are in a glory war. So y'all shouldn't let me have a week off because I, I come back fired up. All right, look, here's the big idea. Big idea. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here's the whole sermon. Here's the whole text. Wake up, fight the battle, win the victory because God deserves the glory. Yes. That's the text. That's the wake up. He, he, Peter begins with um, uh, be sober minded, be watchful, wake up, wake up. Right. We, we need to wake up and fight the battle. We've got there's a battle to be fought. He, he tells us to resist the devil. Resist him. Fight back. Form and mount a resistance against the attacks of Satan. Why? Because he's like a roaring lion. Right? Wake up. Fight the battle. Win the victory. What's the victory? Well, look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that Jesus himself is going to restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, establish us. That's the victory. That's the end goal. That's where this whole thing is going. We resist as Christians. We fight the devil. We resist his attacks. We give God the glory. And in the end, what happens to us, Jesus himself, after we have battled, after we fought, after, after our, our knuckles are bloody, what Jesus does, he comes in and he restores us. All the brokenness that comes with fighting against the enemy, Jesus Jesus comes in and he restores us and confirms us and strengthens us and establishes us. That's the victory. Fight the battle, right? Wake up. Fight the battle. Win the victory. Why? Because God deserves all the glory. Okay, that's the sermon. Now, let me see if I can prove it to you from the text. As has been our habit as we've been studying First and Second Peter, uh, we're, we've done these flyovers, meaning we, we look at the text from uh, a position of about 30,000 feet. We just fly over the text, right? And then, and then we land the plane in the text and come back through and, and take it apart and look at it. So let's, can we do that this morning? Yeah. Y'all with me? Okay. Don't make me preach by myself. I need some amens to help me out today. Okay, let's do the flyover. All right, uh, we begin with uh, command one from the text. Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
He's telling you to do something. That is a clear command. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Reason number one. Why do you need to watch out? Why do you need to wake up, church family? Well, it's because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good reason. <laughs> okay, reason, so, so command, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Uh, because the devil, he's trying, to, he's trying to eat you, okay? Now, second command, resist him. Again, he's telling you to do something. That's a command. This is a command. This is a command here. Resist him. Uh, he, he doesn't say run away from him, right? And we're, we're, we're going to talk about that. Don't, don't make me preach that before we get there. Resist him, okay? Resist him. Fight back. Reason two, why are we fighting back? Well, because the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brother. Th- this is normal, right? Fight back. Suffering for Christ, suffering for the sake of Christ. Christian suffering is normal, Okay, so, so, so fight back, resist him, right? What's the reward? If, if we obey this command, for this reason, we obey this command, for this reason, the reward is after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in what? In Christ will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you. That's, that's the reward. The, there's the battle. After the battle is the victory, the reward. And then... Then his close, before his close, he has a closing salutation, which we'll talk about next week. But before his closing salutation, he, this is essentially his doxology. To him, that is to God, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Period. Paragraph. Amen? Amen. Okay, that's the text. Everybody got that? Yeah. All right, let's dig in. Let's dig in. First Peter. First Peter. Chapter 5. And verse 1, he opens this, uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, sorry. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He begins with this idea of sober-mindedness and being watchful. Why why is he telling us to be sober-minded and to be watchful? Well, it's tagged into uh, verse 7 where he says this, Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Why does he go through that? painstaking, uh, cast all your cares on God, God cares for you. And then it's, it's almost like he abruptly shifts gears and says, be watchful, be sober-minded, wake up. Well, it's because Peter, Peter does not want you to get off track here. The, the idea would be something like, cast all your cares on God because God's taking care of you. So we would say something like, okay, well, if, if God's taking care, if God's hands are on the wheel, I'm going to take a nap in the back seat, R- right? I, I mean, I, I, can, I, can re- I can relax. I can take it easy. I don't have to be vigilant. I don't have to be um, watchful because God's going to care for me. I don't have to store scripture in my heart to be ready to battle the devil. God's going to take care of me. I don't need to gather with my church family to, to praise God and remind me of the glories of the gospel. Why do, I mean, I don't need to do that. God's going to take care of me. I don't need to guard my mind and my eyes from, uh, from sensual material and pornography. I don't have to guard myself. God's going to take care of me. Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, cast your burdens on the Lord. Cast your anxieties on God. God cares for you and, and be watchful and be sober-minded and be vigilant. 
That's that's what that's that's why he's saying this. So what do, what exactly what does that mean? Now now go back to First uh, Peter. 1, 1 Peter 1, verse 13 says this, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, okay, 1 Peter 4, 7, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. It it seems like Peter's trying to to, to stick something in our brains. Be sober-minded, be sober-minded, be sober-minded. What does that, what does that mean to be sober-minded? Well, what's the opposite of sober? Drunk, drunk right? What, what happens when you're drunk? I, I'll explain this because nobody in here, you guys are Christians. You have no idea what, what it means to be drunk. When you're drunk, you, you have a loss of control, yeah. right? You're, you, are, you are no longer in control of your physical faculties. Uh, you slur your words, you stumble, you fall down. Um, you, you lose your mental faculties. Uh, you, you repeat the same story. You, uh, you, you essentially augment, uh, reality is augmented for you because you are drunk, right? This is why people either, like, they, they just laugh, ran, you know, they're laughing, 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 or they're crying, 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 or they just want to fight because <clears throat> reality for them has been augmented. So if the opposite of sober is drunk, right, d- don't be drunk-minded, be sober-minded. Don't be, don't be drunk. <clears throat> be drunk-minded. So, what what makes our mind drunk then? What makes your mind drunk? Well, the obvious one is drugs and alcohol. Okay. Uh, now, when you read what happens next, it makes sense why you would not want to be drunk-minded because a staggering drunk man makes a very easy snack for a lion. Yes. But it's not only drugs and alcohol that makes our minds. Drunk. There are many things that can make your mind drunk. Some of you in here this morning, some of us in here this morning, are hammered drunk. Now, I don't mean that you had a few cocktails before church, but I do mean that you have consumed too much of its spiritual equivalent. Nobody's with me this morning. Amen, somebody. You, you, you have consumed too much of alcohol's spiritual equivalent. The mental consumption of junk makes your mind drunk. That is, too much Netflix, too much Facebook, too much Twitter, and too much Instagram, too much of what the world has on offer. And we are constantly drinking these things into our mind, and it makes us mentally drunk, mentally out of control, mentally unaware of the reality of spiritual warfare. Yeah. Our minds... Are, are drunk. What, what makes your mind spiritually drunk? Obsession with sex, love for money, neglecting to be still and quiet, neglecting to rest, all of these things makes your mind, makes your mind drunk. He says, be sober-minded and be watchful, okay? If we, we ask what's the opposite of sober or is drunk, what's the, he says, be watchful, what's the opposite of watchful? Well, that would be blindness, blindness, not watching for the lion. What, what makes your mind spiritually blind? Well, it would be that same list of things that made everyone in the room uncomfortable. What's the reason he wants you to be vigilant? Look back at the verse. He says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. So, so he, he's saying be, be mentally in control be mentally watching, be sharp. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. If you're in the backyard and you're sitting in your chair, uh, probably looking at your phone and you're supposed to be watching the kids, right? 
Now, how you watch your kids play in the backyard changes drastically if your neighbor comes over and says, hey, there's a rabid dog in the neighborhood. Now you're not, you know, scrolling, you know, through Instagram on your phone. Now you are intently watching your children. He's he's giving this idea of this this lion, this lion. He says, your adversary, your adversary, church family, you have an enemy. The battle is real. This is not paintball. This is not laser tag. This is real warfare. You have an adversary, your adversary, the devil. It says he prowls around. It's so interesting that, that he calls him a lion, a lion. What? Think about this. What animal in the Bible do we usually associate Satan with? A snake. It almost seems like the text should say, um, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he's like a slithering snake, poisonous, ready to sneak up on you and bite you. Right? It it seems like the text should say that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'll tell the story. I, I got time. Uh, I, <laughs> me and, uh, me and my, my good buddy, Wyatt, hey man, we, we were uh, hanging out and my next door neighbor comes running over, bangs on my door, and I open up the door and it's, it's she, her face is, is white, she is freaked out, and she says, do you kill snakes? <laughs> I've never talked to this one, I've waved at her a few times, but the, you know, her opening line to me was, do you kill snakes? I'm um, like, ah, you know, I guess. You know, so, so Wyatt and I go running over there. And we're, we're looking. And she said, it's the, it's the biggest snake I've ever seen in my life. It was like crawling in my window. I don't know what's going on. It was on the back porch. So I'm, I'm looking around, looking around for the snake. Can't see the snake. Don't know where the snake is. Looking for the snake. And, and so, you know, I, I kind of, you know, I'm freaked out. and kind of like looking around, lifting up pots and looking on the banister. And I turn. And when I stand up, there is a post right here. And that snake is right there. <laughs> Snakes sneak. They're, they're, they're stealthy. They're quiet. Before you know it, they're on top of you and they bite you. This says he is a roaring lion. The, the idea here is, is, is Satan sneaky? Is he like a snake? Absolutely. That's why the Bible relates him to a serpent. But he is also like a roaring lion. How so? Because he is powerful. He, 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 is, he is a roaring lion, very, very powerful. He wants to bite you. He wants to devour you. While it is true, Peter wants to emphasize the approach of the devil here is an a, a approach of power, meaning he is not a meowing house cat. He is a roaring lion seeking to devour, devour. Look at that. Look at that word there. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What, is that, what does that mean, that Satan wants to devour us? What's at the bottom of this whole metaphor here? I mean, Satan isn't literally a lion, right? This is a metaphor. So what's at the bottom of the metaphor? Well, what's at the bottom of the metaphor is that Peter is communicating to us that Satan wants to harm us. Satan wants to cause us to suffer. He wants to cause us to suffer. Do you see that in the text, church family? Look at, look at verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of what? Suffering. Look at verse 10. And after you have 
suffered. Satan wants to bring suffering onto Christians. Whatever, whatever your hell on earth is, this is what Satan wants for you. Now, let's ask the question behind the question, okay? If the question is, what does it mean to devour? Y'all with me? Okay. What does it mean to devour? Well, it means that Satan wants to cause you to suffer. Next question. Why does Satan want you to suffer? Chapter five. Chapter five. <laughs> he wants, listen, he wants you to suffer because when Christians suffer, our glory goes off of God and on to whatever the subject matter is of the suffering. Yeah. Meaning, when your house burns down, are you glorifying God? No, you're going, the house burned down. You're giving glory to the house. This is why Satan wants you to suffer, because it robs God of his glory by diverting glory. This is a glory war. If you're taking notes, Satan wants Christians to suffer as an elaborate scheme to stop us from giving God the glory. Y'all know your Old Testament, don't you? Remember that book, Job? Satan? It, it says that, that Satan was going to and fro all over the earth, almost like he was prowling around. And he, and, he, and he says, uh, hey, the, the reason that Job, like you and him are so tight, you guys are best buds, it's because you give him everything. Let me have him. And God says, okay, you can have him, but don't kill him. And what does Satan do? He devours him. Satan devours Job. He, takes every, he causes him to suffer in the worst way possible. Satan creates Job's hell on earth. He gives him hell. And what does Job say? So interesting. Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Now, now we're deep in, in, a, in a very deep theological conundrum, are we not? If Satan is the one who devoured Job, why does Job say it was the Lord who gave and the Lord who takes away? Because God is sovereign over all suffering. Yes. Because God is sovereign over all Christian suffering. God is sovereign over the pain in your marriage. God is sovereign over the difficulties that you have with your children. God is sovereign over your daddy issues. Amen. God is sovereign over all Christian suffering. Everything, everything, everything either comes from or through the hand of God. If you're taking notes, God is sovereign over the suffering Satan brings into our lives. And while he is sovereign over all suffering, God never sins, nor is God committing any type of evil. Verse 9, verse 9, we got to move. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Again, he, he says, resist him. He does not say, run from him. Is Satan powerful? Yes. Can he bring real suffering into your life? Yes. Can Satan even take your life? Yes. 
the, the book of, of Revelation, there are, there are people who are martyred, killed for the cause of, of Christ, and it, was, it says that Satan is the one that caused. So you can even die yet still be victorious over Satan by, by resisting him, by resisting him. So how? How? How do we resist the devil? First way, first way, write this down. Resist the power of the devil with the power of God. We resist the power of the devil with the power of God. Philippians 2, 12, B through 13 says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is something that you do. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That, that is God working in you while you are working. That is the power of God working out of you as you work. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10 says it this way, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked. That's what he's saying. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Well, which is it, Paul? Was it you that was working or was it the grace of God that was working in you? The Apostle Paul says, yes, exactly. That that is relying on the power of God to fight the devil. That, that's, that's exactly what, what he's saying. N another note, God gives us the strength to fight the battles where he has secured the victory. God comes inside of us, giving us the strength, giving us the fortitude, giving us the grit and the fight to get in the battle because God has already secured the victory. Amen. So, so, so we got to get some more amens on that one. God has already secured. the victory. Don't you know that the devil is defeated, but he is not destroyed. The devil. Listen, church family, the devil is going to hell. See, we, we have this silly picture in our mind um, of hell, and hell is this place where there's like, you know, fire and brimstone, and right in the middle of hell, there is this big throne, and there's, there sits Satan with, the, you know, the horns and the tail and the pitchfork and the whole deal, and Satan rules over the dominion of hell. Church family, that is incredibly unbiblical. That, that is not who is in charge of hell. Jesus is in charge of hell. And what's going to happen in the end is Jesus is going to send Satan to hell to burn and be destroyed in the lake of fire forever. So when that old devil starts coming at you, when, when that old devil tries to get you, you just remind him of where he's going. Yeah. You say, devil, you're going to hell. Jesus has already won the victory. Jesus has already won the battle. Jesus went to the cross in my place for my sins. His sacrificial atoning death has covered me. I am justified. I am sanctified, and therefore I will be glorified. And so come on, church family. We can tell that old devil, remind him where he's going. He's going to hell. Now, in addition, we don't just resist the power of the devil with the power of God, we also resist the devil with the weapons you've been given. Resist the devil with the weapons. You have the power of God inside of you to battle against Satan wanting to steal God's glory. You have the power of God in you, but also you, you have an arsenal. Uh, uh, God has armed you for lions. Oh, oh a, lie, a roaring lion. Uh, snake or lion, uh, no problem. We, we have an arsenal here for you uh, th that is going to aid you in your war against this lion. You're loaded for lion. What, what do you have? Well, you have the word of God, don't you? That is a powerful, powerful weapon against the devil. When you take that word and you soak it in your heart and you put it in your mind, when the 
accuser, the adversary, the slanderer comes at you with how sinful you are, how unloved you are, how lonely you are. When you are attacked, you take that word and you say, God will not leave me. God will not forsake me. I am a chosen son. I am loved. I am, I, I am a son of the king. Get out of here, devil. You take that word and you put it in your heart. That's how you battle. That's how you resist him. Not only do you resist him that way, but you resist him with prayer with prayer, praying for hedge of protection, praying that God will protect you, praying over your family, laying your hand on the heads of your children and praying God's mercy and blessings and protection over them. That's how you battle. You battle with God's word. You battle with prayer. You battle with fasting. Not, not only do you battle with those weapons, but you also battle with a squad. You're in a war. You need a platoon, right? You, you need a troop. You need people to battle with. That's, this is what God has given you. You need somebody to watch your six, right? This is a real battle. We're not playing games here. You need to get in a, in a troop, in a platoon, in a company. Get in it. You got to get squad goals, amen? You got to get them squad goals and your squad. You get with your squad and you agree together to fight the devil. You, you set up a sniper position for the devil for your battle buddy. What, what do I mean? I mean, when, when your battle buddy loses their job, you call up your battle buddy and you say, hey, man, I, just, I know you lost your job, but I want to tell you that I love you. I want to tell you that God loves you. I want to tell you that God's got a plan for this. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I have no idea how we're going to get your bills paid, but I love you and God loves you too. You just snipe the devil. You just snipe the devil and, and took care of, of your battle buddy. Resist him firm in your faith. What does that mean, firm? Faith in what? Well, faith in the sovereignty of God over suffering. Firm in that faith. Firm in, in the faith of the gospel. That, that God has saved you, that you have the greatest treasure, which is Jesus and his love, and, and you're, you, you're going to get the victory. The victory's coming. You're fighting in this battle, but... But the victory has already been won, and, and that's the battle that you're fighting. And so any suffering that comes along, God has a beautiful and brilliant plan for it. Firm in that faith. That's how you, that's how you fight. Now, he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What's he, what's he saying there? The same kinds of suffering. He's letting you know that you're not alone. Suffering, suffering has this tendency to isolate. When, when you're going through it, you think that no one understands. No one knows the depth of this pain that I'm experiencing right now. No, no one can ever understand the relationship I had with my mother and, and how it's broken me. No one can ever understand being sexually abused the way that I have been and what, what that's meant for my marriage. No one can understand that. That's what suffering does. It, it causes you to think that you're alone. And Peter is, is driving this point home for us that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not alone. If you, if you have not heard anything that I've said this morning, you need to hear me on this. 
you are not alone in your suffering. You are surrounded by a church body of people. Listen, I'm, I'm not saying that, that somebody in this room has gone through exactly down to the detail of what you're going through. But what I am saying is there is enough people in this room that, that I know of that have deep pain, deep wounds, and can identify with you, can pray for you, and help you through this. If you're taking notes, I've said this before, and I'll continue to say it. Christian suffering is not a lonely road to travel, but a crowded pathway with people who understand. That's the church. That's the local church. That's the church body. You see, I think I think irregular church attenders don't really believe there's a real battle on. I, I, think, I think people who, who don't, who struggle to, to get in their Bibles, people who struggle to spend time in prayer, I, I, I don't think they really believe there's a real battle because if those people really believe there was a real battle, they would, they would come here. They would grab on to, to other brothers and sisters in Christ. They would link arms and say, there is a real lion. He really wants to devour us. And we are going to link arms together in the word and prayer and fasting. And together we will resist him, even though we're suffering. Even though we're suffering, we will give God his, his rightful glory. Christian suffering is normal. We follow a guy who suffered. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We are called to suffering now and glory later. Suffering now and glory later. So thus far we have said resist the devil by glorifying God even in our suffering though it is brought about by the devil. How? Well we resist him by the power of God and with the weapons that he has given us. So to what end will, will this battle will this battle eternally rage on? Well no this, this battle will not eternally rage on. The, let, let me speak to you suffering saints the, the suffering will end. The suffering will end. There, there, there is a, a point in the future when all of the suffering will come to an end. There will be no more pain, no more shame, no more tears, no more crying, no, no more cancer, no, no, no more illnesses. All of it will be wiped away and the battle will be over. This is why he says this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. This is so, listen, church family, slow down, slow down with me this morning and look at this verse. It is so precious. And after you have suffered a little while, a little while, Peter, how can you say a little while? What, what if somebody is trapped in, in a painful marriage for 50 years? What if someone is born with a disability and they live till they're 80? How can you say a little while, Peter? Well, Peter says a little while because 80 years is nothing compared to 80 million years with Jesus. It's a little while. It's, 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 it's a little while. And after you have suffered a little while, listen, this is so precious. The God of all grace, the God of all grace, the grace that you need to get you to the prize, the grace that you need that will get you into what he's about to say next, the grace that will get you into heaven. So when suffering comes and you don't glorify God, 
Instead, you get mad at him. Instead, you question him. Instead, arrogantly, you tell God that your plan is way better. The grace, the God of all grace has grace to cover that. God of all grace who has called you. He called you. He called. He wooed you into his grace. With that grace, he called you. He pulled you into his eternal. Look at this. He called you to his eternal. What's that word? Glory. That's the word. That's the word we've been looking for. He has called you. He sent the Holy Spirit in power to, to begin to tug at your heart. Maybe you were eight years old and you heard the gospel and responded for the first time. Maybe you were 25. Maybe, maybe you got married and had kids and, and then you got saved. But at some point, the Holy Spirit began to work in your life through a friend, through a family member, through a coworker, through a sermon. And, and the Holy Spirit wooed you and beckoned you into the grace. That's the calling. This is, this is the effectual calling, the irresistible calling of God as he calls you into his eternal. It's, it's forever. It's forever glory, meaning when we get to heaven, we will see the glory of God. And for the next billion, billion, billion years, we will continue to discover more and more and more and more of God's glory as we are deeply loved like we've never been loved before. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory, listen, will himself this is Jesus. This is Jesus. This is, this is our Lord, our King, our Savior, our friend. King Jesus will do this for us. What will he do for us? He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish after the battle, after you've been kicked around, after your hands are bloody, knees shaking, feel like you've been punched in the gut after the battle, ears ringing from the explosions. He brings you in and he begins to restore you. He washes those bloody hands. He he gets the dirt off of your uniform. He gets you something to eat, something to drink. He restores your broken body as as we age and as we wither, our bodies break down and he gives us a new resurrection body. He restores all of the things that are broken, all the things that are broken in your marriage, all the things that are broken in your heart, all the things that are broken in this world, he restores. The pain that you've experienced is real, church family. I know that. I know you and I know what you've gone through. I know what you're going through. And he'll restore you. Not only does he restore you, but look at this. He confirms you. He he says, well done, good and faithful. You made it. You made it. I love you. And and like like a husband embracing his bride on their wedding night, he confirms us and brings us in. He restores. He confirms. He strengthens us. Our weary, war torn bodies our strength, and he gives us strength, and he establishes. He establishes us on a foundation that will last forever with him in heaven. To God, to God be the glory. Second Corinthians 4.17 says it this way. 
for this light momentary affliction. (laughs) The Apostle Paul says this. Shipwrecked Apostle Paul. Beaten with reeds, Apostle Paul. Whiplashed Apostle Paul. Bitten by a snake, Apostle Paul. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of what? Glory beyond all comparison. If you're taking notes, God shows just how glorious He really is when He fights in us and for us, preserving us by His grace and glorifies sinners like you and me. That's that's how we know God is glorious because sinners like us make it to the victory. (laughs) Uh, People who can't do battle do battle. People who are weak and laying dead on the battlefield, God resurrects dead off the battlefield and gives us and empowers us, gives us the strength to fight and not only to fight, but to win. God does that. That's how we know he is glorious. Okay, verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He he ends, before he gets to his closing salutation, he ends with this doxology, this, this amazing doxology. To him, that is God, be dominion, that is sovereignty, ruling control. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I, I thought about why, Peter, why would you end that way? Why would you put, put the period there at, at this? Why this? Well, these are persecuted Christians. These are suffering Christians that he's writing to, suffering under the Roman government. They're being um, hunted because they're Christians. They're being killed because they're Christians. They're being put on uh, stakes because they're Christians. They're being thrown to the lions. They're getting their heads cut off. It looks like the dominion belongs to the Roman government. It looks like the dominion actually belongs to Satan. Just like it did on that day when Jesus hung on the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, it didn't look like he had dominion. It looked like he lost. But isn't that the great beauty of the gospel? The upside downness of the gospel. That in defeat, there's actually victory. That's the gospel. And so while it looks like the Roman government is winning, while it looks like Satan is actually in control, what's actually happening is to him, God is actually sovereign over all of that. God is sovereign over it all. Okay, I'll, I'll close with this, with this final thought. I, I wonder if you considered what, what Peter is giving us in this analogy of, of the devil being a lion. In the scriptures, who's the lion? Yeah. Did you think about that? Peter's telling us about this this roaring lion. And usually we we would think about the snake, but he doesn't want us to think about the snake. He wants to think about this lion. And and he's saying that uh, that Satan is is kind of like this lion. But, but we know uh, Jesus is the true lion, the, the lion of Judah. This is why C.S. Lewis uh, makes his character Aslan a lion, right? He, he's drawing from, from that. Peter, Peter is letting us know that Satan is a counterfeit lion. Uh, he, he's, letting, he's, he's letting us know that Satan is a fake lion. He is a busted lion. He's a suspect lion. He's a spurious lion. 
he is not the lion who is the chosen son like Simba. He's Uncle Scar. Right? Uh, he's letting it. Satan is not the true lion of Judah and therefore does not deserve the glory. But the true lion of Judah deserves the glory. That, that's, that's why we're in this great glory war is because there is a fake, broke, suspect, scar lion trying to divert the glory when the true lion of Judah deserves the glory because the true lion of Judah was perfectly obedient to the father. The true lion of Judah performed miracles and preached amazing sermons. The true lion of Judah was beaten and, and scarred and marred beyond recognition. The true lion of Judah went to the cross and was killed and died in our place for our sins. But the true lion of Judah came out of the tomb with a roar. He roared with a great roar on that third day. And the true lion of Judah ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all of creation. And that is why he alone deserves the glory. I'll end the same way we started. Wake up. Wake up, church family. There is a real, there's a real battle. It's real. Wake up. Fight the battle. You got, you got the power of the Spirit inside of you. You have the power of the Word, the power of prayer, the power of fasting, a company, a battle buddy, a troop, people to fight with. Wake up. Fight the battle. Win the victory. It's coming. It's coming, Christians. You will be restored. You will be confirmed. You will be strengthened. You will be established. The victory is coming. And God... God deserves the glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for protecting us from that evil lion, that fake lion, that suspect lion, that spurious lion who is seeking to steal your glory. Oh, Lord, in this great glory war, let us divert all glory to you. Let us give all glory to you. All allegiance goes to the true king, the true lion. Lord, I know the suffering in this room. Lord, I know the suffering in my life and the pain. Oh, Lord, help us battle. Help us to continue to battle so that on that great day when you send Satan to his destiny, to the lake of fire, to be fully completely destroyed forever, we will be there with you, restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established in the glory that is yours alone. Oh, make that true, God. Make that true of us. Make that true. I pray these things in the mighty and the powerful name of the Lion of Judah, that is Jesus. Amen.